Hey everyone, Michael Bond here, and before we jump into the episode, I want to remind you about the Back 40 Pastors Conference. This year's guest speakers are Rob McClure from the Bridge Church in Mustang, Oklahoma, and Brad Price from Connect Church in Alum Bank, PA. Admission is $50 for lead pastors, $35 for staff, and $15 for our online experience. You can register today, and the conference begins Friday, August 4th at 6 p.m. Doors open at 4 p.m. It's a two-day conference, so we'll be back at it August 5th at 8 a.m. I've worked these conferences for the past few years, and I can tell you, you don't want to miss it. To find out more and to register, visit back40.network. From understanding the news of today to explaining principles which will last a lifetime, you're listening to the Back 40 Leadership Podcast, equipping pastors and church leaders across rural America and beyond to meet the challenges of ministry while advancing the kingdom of God in your local community and in our world. My name is Michael Bond, and I'm here with Pastors Mel Massengale and Todd Stanley. Hello. Hello, everybody. All right, so I want to kick this off with a discussion of eternal perspective. Specifically, I want to know, how has maintaining an eternal perspective been beneficial to your ministry? What is it that should separate pastors from self-help advisors, and where is the appropriate overlap? So I think that those are two, possibly two disparate questions. So let's just take the first piece, eternal perspective. You've heard people say, oh, this person's too heavenly-minded to be of any earthly good, um, and things like that. But I think that eternal perspective is extremely important. I know, Mel, I've come to your office before like with talking about like current events or things that were kind of you know, seemed a little bit alarming. And um, you had just said to me, well, you need to remember that this world isn't the end, is the end game, isn't the end goal. And if we keep that in play, then that has a cascading effect on the way that we see everything else. So when it comes to your ministry specifically, how has has, um, keeping an eternal perspective been beneficial to you? I mean... The, the first thing that comes to mind for me is like, it's the only reason I'm still in ministry. I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean for yeah, real. That's not, that's not incorrect. It's funny. <laughs> funny to hear that. You're, you're correct. <laughs> yeah. <is. laughs> I mean, let's just, you know, let's put it out it's on the table. It's not for the money. It's not yeah. for the esteem. <laughs> huh. Fame. You know, because ministry can be really difficult, right? I mean, there are times when it is heartbreaking. There are times when um well, you know, when when it rubs against all of my selfishness, <laughs> when it man, I didn't know I was gonna get emotional about this. Um when it is at odds with what what my flesh might want. You know, and if you don't have an eternal perspective, if you're not, if you don't recognize that the thing that you are really pressing toward, the thing that you're really working for is, is so much bigger and so much better than those things that we might be tempted to abdicate eternity for, right? I mean, and maybe that's a, a, a strong way of saying it, but the things that we might trade it for that it's not worth it right and Mm -hmm. so so that's the thing that keeps you going i think that an eternal perspective should have for us a twofold um 
result. Number one, it should buoy us in the times when it's really hard and we might be tempted to quit because um, because things aren't going the way that we think they ought to. Having an eternal perspective can buoy us in those times because we recognize, you know, to borrow from Peter, that these light afflictions work for us the weight of eternal glory, right? There's something bigger at stake than this moment. The second thing that it should do for us is that it should energize us to continue to work, continue to put our hand to the plow, continue to to press on because there is, again, something bigger at stake than mm-hmm. this moment, right? And so uh, it should both energize us to continue the work and buoy us in the times when we might be tempted to quit. Yeah, I think it offers perspective as well because... Um, I mean, think about children. Children have no perspective. All they can see is what's immediately in front of them, whether it's, you know, uh, a knee that's scraped or a disappointment of some kind or whatever it is. All they see is that moment. They they lack the ability to have foresight. Um, and what an eternal heavenly perspective helps us with is having, having um, just a different point of view. Yeah. Um, because I find in, even in ministry – um, I, I can be terribly short-sighted. You know, I get a, I, I find out that somebody's left our church or I find mm-hmm. out somebody hates my guts or whatever. Yeah. And it's, it's easy to look at the immediate moment and feel like, oh, this is what life looks like. And I'm, I'm just like the child with a scraped knee that all I see is the pain. But if I can have a little bit of perspective and go, okay, hey, this isn't the end of a, the story. You know, the story continues. There's another chapter after this. It makes it a little easier. Um, and this weekend, this last weekend here at Summit Church, we had uh, Jim Hennessy with us. And this is something he talks a lot about. And if you're interested, you can find them at Trinity Church in Cedar Hill, Texas. But he talks a lot about uh, like a heavenly perspective that, that it's not just about kind of a kind of a traditional view that I think a lot of Christians have is like, well, this world, I'll endure it. And then someday I get to go to heaven and that's my reward. And, you know, streets of gold and mansions and, you know, that kind of thing. One of the things he talks a lot about is the idea that, Hey, um, yes, that's part of it. But I think part of a a heavenly perspective is I want to bring the culture of heaven to earth. Like I want to, I want to, in the time I have on planet Earth, see the world transformed and changed and good advancing and the kingdom going forth. And I think that's part of having a, an eternal perspective, too, is not just, well, this is just, a, this is just a, a way station or this is just a gap until yeah. I get to my real. Because there's truth to that. Like, we are spiritual beings. We're made for eternity. But... God has put us here to advance his kingdom and advance good. And so I think that eternal perspective, like it does help us see things for what they really are. I mean, gosh, let's just, I'll just delve into this. Like some of the political stuff that gripped churches, you know, a few years ago, um, that was part of it, that people were so uh, embroiled in this moment. Mm -hmm. Like we have to say this, or we have to do this, or we have to take action and, and not that those things were necessarily wrong, but I think some of those per, some of those um, points of view lacked foresight. They lacked perspective. It was going back to that thing. Like, I feel this hurt. I feel this tension. I feel this whatever it is. And we have to do something right now. And well, maybe, but 
but let's look at this in, in a different way. And I think it helps with all those things. Yeah. Yeah. It really helps preserve the why behind why you're doing something. It helps protect you against demoralization. So for instance, it can feel like we are all about to drown in a rainbow tsunami of bad ideas. Um, but if we remember that the reason why we're taking the steps that we're taking is because we're doing that on Christ's command, yeah. then we know that while the steps we're taking and the effects we're trying to see are here in this world, the reason we're doing it comes from the divine. Mm -hmm. And so then if things completely come apart, then we still in theory would continue stepping forward in the mm -hmm. same exact way yeah. because all we actually need is the command of Christ. Yeah. That's the only justification we need to make to advance the kingdom of God. Yeah. And so that's, I know that that's certainly helpful for me. So, and, the, and that's ideal because that's not how many of us live, but that, that's yeah. exactly right. Yeah. So when we think about ways in which we might have a impact, a beneficial impact in the here and now, um, I think a common issue that people are trying to resolve is mental health and let's say uh, life coaching or making your life better, like mm -hmm. making your quality of life better, your family better. Like mm -hmm. a lot of these things, they're not vain. Uh, you know, I don't want people to think that wanting your family to be better is vanity. I don't mm -hmm. think it is. I think that that's all part of that divine mm -hmm. call. And so when you know, sometimes I think self-help gets a bad rap in the church because of the way maybe the church has used it in the past um, as kind of like a gimmick, let's say. I, I don't know. We can talk about that. I want to know wh where are the distinctions between pastor and self-help advisor and where are the overlaps? Because I think there are overlaps and rightfully so. So let's talk a little bit about that to, just to kind of figure out what the right way of thinking about this temporal kingdom beneficial worldly impact should be. Yeah. Um, I think it's uh, for me, I think it's motivation. Like what's your motivation? Um, is my motivation to, as a, as a pastor, when I'm trying to help somebody is my motivation just to make them more comfortable or to make them happier or to make them like, am I just trying to treat a symptom of something or am I trying to get to the root of something um, cause, cause really, um, for me, like this sounds terribly utilitarian to say it like this, but for me, what I really want to do, I mean, according to scripture, our job is to equip the saints for the work of ministry, right. but really what it's saying is I need to make people help people become useful for God's purposes. And so, um, so I think part of it, I've got to understand my motivation can't just be, well, they have, they have a bad marriage. I want them to be happier in their marriage, but how can we help them be more useful for God's purposes today? And it probably means their marriage is better, but is that the end of it? Or is there something beyond that? You know? And so is my motivation just to, well, I want to fix this and put a bandaid on it and they'll be happy. Or is it, Hey, I want to, I want to help you navigate this so that you can be a useful tool for God's purposes. Right. Yeah. I think that's interesting because if your purpose is to honor and glorify God in something like helping to reconcile and restore a marriage, it opens up other doors. Like for instance, if I take a couple who have a struggling marriage and I say, my, my over my underlying purpose here is to make them more effective tools for the kingdom of God. Well, maybe I start by making them more effective tools for the kingdom of God and that process helps resolve their mm -hmm. marriage. Mm -hmm. Whereas like it 
becomes less of a one-to-one project, but it's a project that has uh, a more durable underlining purpose. And I think that, um, yeah, like your purpose determines everything. It's, it's like a, when you, when you think about tools themselves, tools are Mm -hmm. designed for a certain thing. And so if your purpose is happy marriage, then the process is going to look different than if your purpose is making this person more effective for the kingdom of God. Although a side effect of that may be a happier, more well-adjusted marriage. So that's good. And on the individual level, their process will be different as well. Right. I mean, when Jesus talked about the Pharisees, he said they're whitewashed tombs, right? But Mm -hmm. inside they're full of dead men's bones. They looked righteous on the outside. Self-help has some degree of effectiveness, Mm -hmm. right? You, you can, you can become a better person through through some of those practices, right? But you don't become a redeemed person, mm-hmm. right? Inside, you can still be full of dead men's bones. Uh, the danger in Scripture we see it over and over and over is that God's people would take credit for the work that God is doing. And so as pastors, we have to always be pointing people toward Jesus, that, you know, that is the work of God, that God God's work, go, you know, the the. Re- God works from the inside out. He does a work on the inside of us that then begins to transform us mm-hmm. on the outside. Yeah. Um, self-help is the other way around. The idea is if I can change my external circumstances, if I can be- modify my behavior, then it will change my internal situation. It doesn't, right? It, it doesn't work that way. The work of the Spirit is from the inside out, and we have to continually remind people of that and and that our pursuit is of Christ. And as we pursue Him, we become more like Him. When we become more like Him, yes, it, it changes our behavior. It changes the way that we talk. It changes the way that we think. It changes the, it changes everything. Um, but the the massive difference then is that as we pursue Christ and He transforms us, God receives the glory that He rightly deserves. Self-help, on the other hand, exalts us to a place of deity, and then that is recipe for disaster. Yeah, two really good, I think, tangible examples of this process at play are, one is in sacrifice. So, for instance, I actually think that if you're trying to be fulfilled, if you're trying to have a sense of meaning and purpose, Mm -hmm it doesn't make sense to give up of yourself to someone for someone else's good to, to practice agape love, let's say. Um, but when you sacrifice that way, and people often discover this when they have children, even if they're in the secular world, like once they have children and they have this repository for agape, um, for this practice of sacrifice, then all of a sudden they are filled with meaning and purpose. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it, it doesn't make sense on its surface, but whenever you practice it, you start to see the yield. And that's one of those things I think that is in terms of process, it's important. Another area would be um, this idea of loving your neighbor as yourself. So Mm -hmm. for instance, you've all met someone who's like just a walking advertisement for how great they themselves are. Like they're just always (laughs) trying to persuade everyone around them how Mm -hmm. interesting and how wonderful and how nuanced they are. Um, And those people often are ostracized. Like they just can't seem to make their social network work. They can't seem to develop real authentic friendships and maybe they struggle to find out why and then they end up doubling down on the process of trying to convince others of how good they are Mm -hmm. but it is the process of convincing that is causing the problem and it's weird because when we sell cars that is what we want to do and it works to sell cars but it doesn't seem to work 
in terms of love and human relationships. But if you practice love and you practice loving your neighbor as yourself, then all of a sudden people want to be around you and then you, you have a healthy social circle. And mm. so like, I think that those are two examples, Todd, of what you're saying of just yeah. this, this idea of sometimes what seems like the most straightforward way to the goal uh, actually won't take you in that direction because you're circumventing uh, what it would mean to be a redeemed person in favor of what it would mean to be a well-developed person, maybe. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I want to uh, talk a little bit about seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and then all of the, the other things being added, okay? But I want to walk us through the chain of reasoning that I use to ask the question. And if you have any issues with the chain of reasoning, please point them out and then we'll get to the question and we'll, we'll go through there. So the first four of the Ten Commandments concern our duty towards God. The last six concern our duty toward our neighbor. The first three petitions in the Lord's Prayer are aimed at honoring God. The last three concern our own temporal and spiritual needs. Jesus sums up this priority by saying, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, then all these things shall be added. What does it mean for a pastor to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness? Is this different from how a lay person should be doing it? And what are some ways that you steward your own relationship with God in addition to helping others steward theirs? So I actually want to ask that last part last because that feels, uh, I, I want to deal with this first part first. Let's just really unpack it. Um, what does it mean for a pastor to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness? And is this different from how a lay person should be doing it? Okay, so let me, uh, let me present this in a practical way. Um, every pastor that's listening to this struggles with people in their church that are, um, that are inconsistent and their inconsistency many times is, uh, birthed out of, um, divided hearts. Like, okay. Um, yes, I like your church, but I also like to go to my kids' ball games, and I like to go to the lake, and I like to do this, and I like to sleep in, and I like brunch, and I like... So what's happened is they're essentially building their kingdom um, instead of God's kingdom. And so it's easy for us to identify that in others, but um, but I think for pastors, we can be care we've got to be careful because we can be building our kingdom and it looks like we're building God's kingdom, but really it's not about God's kingdom at all. It's about us. It's about my esteem or yeah. my, you know, I need people here because I'm validated by the attendance or I need people here because I've got a denominational meeting in two weeks and I need to be able to say, you know, here's how many people we've got. Um, I need people here because whenever they tell me my preaching, nobody preaches like you pastor, you know, like all those things. And essentially what we're doing is we're building our kingdom instead of God's kingdom. And so even though, we can identify that in others. Sometimes we miss it in ourselves. And this is where I would say probably, I think it looks the same fundamentally for us and for lay people um, that we putting God's kingdom first means I filter my desires through God's kingdom. I filter my decisions through God's kingdom. Not as what, what is best for my kingdom, what is best for my church, um, you know, the way I'm building it, but God, what is best for you? Um, and we've talked about, you know, at Summit just practically, because we think about like missionaries. So my daughter is called to missions and she's going to move to Greece, you know, later this year, the beginning of next year. And she's making decisions, not based on what is most comfortable, but, you know, like apartments. 
She's not saying, well, I need to find something that's at least 2,000 square feet and, you know, um, pool access. And what she's saying is, I need to find someplace that's safe, but someplace that is good for me to do ministry, um, that, that makes it possible for me to. And so we expect missionaries to do that kind of stuff. But really, I think that the baseline in God's kingdom is that all of us will do that, that we'll put God's kingdom first and say, okay, I'm not going to necessarily build my dream house. God, what kind of house would you want me to build? God, I, I know the school district is great for my kids, but God, is that where you would want me to put my kids? I'm not going to assume that that is your kingdom when mm-hmm. it really just might be my kingdom. Right. So like, really, it's just filtering our kingdom through his kingdom first and saying, okay, God, um, some of the, there's going to be some overlap here between these two things, but I want to prioritize you first. And then as I do, then all my needs that I think are important, some of them are going to fade away. Some of them are going to come to light. Some of them are going to be conformed. Some of them, you know, all those kind of things. But we, we expect that for pastors and missionaries and, but we don't, we don't apply that to our own lives. We think seek ye first the kingdom means get to church as often as you can. And if it's not inconvenient for you, that's Mm -hmm. what a lot of people think seek ye first the kingdom of God means. Yeah. I don't know that I have anything to add to that, honestly. Well, so when someone thinks about seeking first the kingdom of God, I think that the, I'm going to try to uh, steel man the opposing position here. They might think, oh, well, you just want me to be in church all the time. Right. You just want me, and then the rest of my life is going to come apart because I'm not paying attention to it and I'm not, not going to do well and all these things. And I would just say to that, it's like, um, imagine you're seeking first security mm-hmm. and then the kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. I, I think we have an example, many examples, even in our own church, where uh, the, the, the flip side of this, people who are seeking first the kingdom of God have more security than probably anyone around who's seeking security. So I think yep. of people, I, I think of, uh, you know, we have uh, a lady in our Blairsville location named Carmen, and she's probably the least likely person in the region to end up homeless for some reason, mm-hmm. because she has an army of people who would come to her side Correct. and support her. <laughs> uh, and she doesn't, she, she seeks first the kingdom of God yep. and his righteousness. And these things have been added to her. Like security has been added to her. And so it's one thing you could say, okay, well, I just want to, I want to build a fantastic savings account. And if I have this nest mm-hmm. egg, I'll be safe. I'll be mm-hmm. secure and I won't ever end up in the worst possible misery. Yeah. But I think that's actually less dependable than community. I don't think that there's anything more, more dependable than yeah. having a community of people around you. Yeah. This has been true for all of human history. I think this is one of the reasons why in the early days of the West, people were homesteading. It's because like, if you have a homestead, then you're not going to starve mm-hmm. and you're going to have people who can take care of you whenever you break a leg or whatever it is like that hasn't gone away. Yeah. And I think that we don't get to tap into that unless we are seeking first the kingdom of God. And so these, these things like, cause he's talking talking about the temporal things like clothing mm-hmm. and food and all of this mm-hmm. because we're worried about them. But he also says the father knows that we need these things. And yeah. so I think that whenever we, like you said, filter our desires through that pursuit and things are properly ordered that way. Um, you know, and, and Carmen's just one example. There are yeah. many, many people in the summit community who they, they just, they, they, there's, they're so service oriented and serving servant or, minded they have a servant's heart let's say that people just 
almost universally recognize them that way and they would come alongside them if they had a need mm-hmm. and you can't find that in in other places it's it's really difficult yeah. to cultivate that outside of a community a loving community well yeah. and and we can default to church attendance for good christians well if they're good christians they come to church all the time <laughs> and that's not that's not necessarily true but i will also say um church attendance has got to be part of the metric uh, for, for people, it's gotta be part of the, uh, the equation in my pursuit of Christ. It has to be. Uh, and so if it's hard for me to get to church, how am I going to pray daily or how am I going to like really pursue God? If I can't come to church more than once every six or eight weeks, um, if that is a duty and a task for me, then how in the world are you going to be an effective witness? How in the world? So again, I think we have this hierarchy between like super Christians and then regular Christians. And, um, and I think we've got to change the standards for that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And if you, if you seek something else first, instead of the kingdom of God and his righteousness, what you're doing is you're saying, my knowledge of what I need is superordinate to Mm -hmm. God's knowledge of what I need. And like an area where that might fall just catastrophically wrong um, is this. Okay. So Todd, you had mentioned before about the, the concept of the adjacent possible, and Uh you can unpack that again, if you'd like for people who might be listening to this first time for the first time. But another way of thinking about it is like expanding your surface area for serendipitous or lucky encounters. And Mm -hmm. so going to church is an excellent thing to do if you want to do that, because there's lots of people around. And so you might think, oh, I really want this job at the, um, at the bank across town. And so I'm going to, everything that I do is going to be oriented around getting this job at the bank across town. But the, the issue is you don't know what you need to do to get the ba- to get the job at the bank across town. God knows more mm-hmm. about what you need to do for that than you actually do. And so if you limit yourself to your own designs yeah. for that goal, I think that you end up missing things. Like you mm-hmm. don't, you miss open doors where if you, as if you, you know, go to church and you like you're not going to church with the motive of getting the job at the bank across town. You're going to church because you're seeking first the kingdom of God. Mm -hmm. And then let's say maybe you meet the VP from the bank across town. He also goes to the church and you guys get lunch together and you talk about the sermon and all these things. And Mm -hmm. boom, there you go. You have the job. Like people, I don't think people think about these things very often when it comes to um, why they should just say yes and get out there and do something, even if they've determined that it's not the most uh, fruitful thing they could be doing. Who cares what you determine in some sense? Like you should, you should faithfully obey God's command on this and trust that these things will be added to you. And they just, yeah. they, they are in so many instances. Yeah. Well, I think too, uh, you know, it's important for us to, to ask ourselves the question, uh, what would I not be willing to give up for the cause of Christ? And that can help us then to answer really what I'm pursuing, mm-hmm. right? So let's say I have a really comfortable living that, you know, uh, man, you got, a, you got a job that makes a lot of money. You got the house you always wanted, all of those things. And then the Spirit of God speaks to you and says, you know, lay it all down and go and serve the people of, you know, Cambodia, right? Whatever. Um, if I'm not willing to lay those things down to do that, then then my perspective is that this thing that I have is of greater value mm-hmm. than the kingdom of God. 
right? And and what we're asking for then really is heaven too soon. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and mm-hmm. uh, you know, and so if I am not willing to lay those things down, I mean, you know, I mean Jesus said, if, if you're not willing to give up houses and land and, you know, hate your, your mother and father, you know, for you know, then then you're not worthy of the kingdom. And so I mean, those are tough questions to ask, and yeah. and they're you know, but those are the things that we need to be asking ourselves. What because because if if there's something I'm not willing to give up for the sake of the kingdom, then that means that there's something that's more valuable to me than the kingdom. That there's something in me that believes that having this thing that I currently hold is is worth more than whatever it, it might be that God is offering to me if I were to lay it down which is just not the case, right? But that's our faulty way of thinking. Well, and humans, uh, all of us, are, have this propensity to gravitate toward comfort, mm-hmm. um, even at the expense of improvement. So even if we know my life will be better if I do this, if I change this relationship, if I um, stop eating this, if I start yeah. doing this, my life will be better but we still have this gravitational pull toward comfort. So even conscientiously, if we know, well, my life will be better if I get in community. My life will be better if I do what the Bible says. Yeah. Um, there's still this pull toward, but I'm comfortable doing what I know, even if it's not as good. Um, and that is such a hard thing for leaders to help people navigate because we can't break that for people. Right. Uh, I wish we could, but um, that's something they have to do. And so it's, it's, it's up to us to present to them a gospel that is so beautiful and lovely and captivating that they say it's, it's the uh, treasure of uh, the pearl pearl of great price. price. It's the hidden treasure where we go, I'll sell everything. I'll give up everything for that. And I think that's part of the issue too, is that we've presented a a gospel that's so comfortable and simple. And why, why would it captivate anybody? Right. You know, because we dumb it down for people. We got to attract people. I don't want to make it too hard. And all these things that I just feel like we've lowered the standards so low. Yeah, well, you know, and unfortunately, uh, the church has been guilty, especially you know, with, in prosperity circles, right? Of, of presenting like, you know, that that these are all the things that God wants to give you, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then that those things become what we're pursuing yeah. rather than Christ. Yeah. When you know, again, going back to what Mel was talking about, the the the, the picture that Scripture would hold out to us is that Jesus is the treasure. Yeah. Right, and if we pursue Christ, uh, then all this will be added. Yeah, yeah, and that that doesn't. But I don't think that means that you're going to also get yeah. wealthy. And it, it means that the, the you can have Jesus house, and the Ferrari. Right, right. but <laughs> it means that the deepest <laughs> desires of your heart. Maybe you didn't even know. Yeah, what it was that needed to be added. Yeah, yeah, you know. Mm-hmm. And but you find yourself whole. Mm-hmm. And complete in Christ, and men, you, you can't find that anywhere else. I mean, Peter, where else will we go, Lord? You alone have the words of life. Mm-hmm. Well, I know growing up in church, I was terrified that I would be called to ministry, right? <laughs> like I know, yeah. I mean, I know you grew up in a similar kind of context. 
that we'd have a missionary come in. And I remember as like an 11 year old thinking, I don't want to go to Africa. Like, I don't want to go to Africa. And, um, and not that I'm going to Africa, but I think, again, we get so comfortable just attending church once in a while, just doing our thing that um, we don't even understand that if God calls you to Africa and you go to Africa, it's going to be the greatest thing in your life. Yeah. Um, you know, if God calls you to ministry to quit your job and to go to seminary, it's going to be the greatest thing. Yeah. Is it going to be easy? Probably not, yeah. but it's going to be fulfilling. It's going to bring you joy. It's going to bring fulfillment, all these things that we wouldn't find otherwise. Yeah. But again, it takes surrender. It takes us abandoning ourselves. Man, that is such a hard proposition. Um, yeah. To present to people. Yeah, I think it was Jim Elliott, you know, that said, uh, "He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose." Yeah, you know, and I, and that's easy to see on the back end, right? It's easy for me after you know I've been doing ministry for as long as I have to go. Everybody should do this if they're called to it. Yeah, but it's real hard on the front end to go. Hey, it's going to be awesome. You should trust God. Yeah, and have people go. Okay, let's do that. Yeah, there's a there's an interesting thought experiment you can employ here to really catch the weight of this. Um, and what's cool about it is I think it scales. So I think anyone listening to this could do this. So, um, if you imagine your 20 year old self walking into the room and meeting who you are right now, Mm -hmm. meeting yourself now, um, and then you ask the 20 year old self, how did you get here? I actually think that almost no one, (laughs) their 20 year old self, almost no one could answer that question. I have no idea how I ended up where you're at now. And the, the reason why it's like that, I think is because you're not actually authoring a lot of this stuff on Mm -hmm. your own. I mean, you could sit at 20 years old, or if you're 20 right now, you could sit at 12 years old and think, this is what my life is going to be for the next 60 years. And I'm going to, I'm going to, crafted out just perfect so that it works that way. I don't know anyone who has a life like that. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it seems to be the case that, um, Todd, like you were saying, we don't know what we don't know. And so we don't know how much we want the things that are not even on our radar yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And when we pursue Jesus, these things are opened up and then we see, oh, okay. Mm-hmm. And, and so that's, I think that that's and the crazy part about it. This is where it gets really crazy. I think the same is true even if your life goes sideways. And if you're like in your 50s and you've just had, you just have this trail of destruction behind you. And then you go back to 20 and you say, okay, mm-hmm. how did you get there? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I just don't know. I don't that know is, how I got that here. That's not what I mapped out. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. so it's like we're not doing this on our own, on our own agency entirely. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think in some sense, if if our lives happened in exactly the way we mapped them out, right? Like if I if I look back and go, yeah, it's just how I just how I drew it up. I think you lose your capacity to wonder. Mm-hmm. There's no adventure in that. Yeah, and so you know, um, I, I think that there's something very beneficial about looking back and going i don't i don't know exactly how it got here good or bad because because it's in those things for the believer especially that we recognize the hand of god um either preserving us or leading us in ways that you know that that only god can receive the glory for and that's that's in, that's incredibly important if we are to learn to trust god 
Um, and so I, you know, I, I say lean into that. There was, um, and I think Todd's heard me say this before, but, um, there was a, a book by Bernard Malamud, um, called the natural. It got turned into a movie by mm-hmm. Robert Redford in the eighties. But, um, it's about this, this baseball phenom and he is, he is destined for stardom destined. It's a sure, it's a lock that he's going to be the greatest pitcher that ever lived. Um, and along the what before that ever happens, he gets sidetracked. Yeah. And um, it's interesting because the book and the movie are different. The book is a tragedy. <laughs> yes. I mean, it is heartbreaking. And the movie turns <laughs> out, you know, they have had to live ever after. He's playing catch with his son in the in the grain in the wheat field. You know, all this kind of stuff. <laughs> but but there's this line that's the same in both that he says, "My life didn't turn out the way I thought it would." And in the book, it's a tragedy because. He was destined for this thing, and he never accomplished it. Yeah. And in the book, uh, it's it's not a tra- it's not tragic any longer because it turns out. I mean, in the movie, it turns out a happy ending. And and I feel like for many of us in ministry, especially, we could say that that hey, my life didn't turn out the way I, I thought it would, but thank God it didn't turn out the way I thought it would. You know, look at where God has brought me. I wouldn't be an Indiana PA. And neither would I. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I'm so glad I'm here. Absolutely. And so I'm glad that God is the greatest editor of our story that ever lived, that I wrote a pretty good story, but he edited it and said, no, 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 no. This is not how this is going to turn out, so... So what do you tell yourself today when you're walking into a similar situation, um, a similar um, unseen curve in the road and those feelings of anxiety and, uh, oh, which way, which, which, which turn do I make at this moment? What do you tell yourself that makes it easier for you to walk that process out today than maybe 20, 30 years ago? Do you have, have you learned anything that you kind of just let yourself know or remind yourself of uh, whenever you're about to enter into a situation like that? Because I, I think that we end up having those curves in the road probably for the rest of our lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so what do you do to help alleviate that fear? Man, I, this is going to, I mean, it's so simple, but it's that God is in control. God is in control. If if I don't remind myself of that, I will I will freeze in making decisions. I will waffle back and forth, not knowing which way. I'll I'll try to weigh out every every single option and go, you know, well if I do this, this might turn out bad. But if I choose this, then this might turn. Out, I, I'll I'll get stuck in those things if I don't remind myself God's in control. And so you know, pray. Seek guidance, uh, make the best decision you know how to make, and and move. Mm-hmm. And but if 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 I don't remind myself of that, it's game over, man. Well, and Todd and I are at a different phase in life than you are, Michael, and that some of the guys and ladies that are listening to this right now might be. Um, where the the longer the longer I go, the easier it is to do that. Yeah, you know, where it was a, it was theoretical early on. You know, I would remind myself, well, we got to trust God. It's going to be okay. We got to trust God. (laughs) But I hadn't hadn't seen God be faithful enough to be able to trust Him as confidently. I I was young, but now I'm old. Right, (laughs) right, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And so now, I mean, like that's part of just natural perspective. But it goes back to what we talked about at the beginning: having an eternal perspective. All right. Well, um, you know, if I'm 
<laughs> if I'm if I live, great. If I die, I'll be with Christ. And mm-hmm. that is not something you hear twenty year olds saying. Yeah. Um, and so I think that again, it's part of natural um perspective, but I think it's eternal as well, going, All right, God, I trust you and you're in control and I'm gonna be faithful and I'm gonna blow it sometimes. But even when I do, you're still faithful. So yeah. let's go. Yeah, and I think it's okay to use your own life experiences to help affirm your faith in God and in the mm-hmm. sense that because in scripture we see many are the occasions where, you know, he'll do X, Y, and Z, and then he'll follow it with, then they will know that I am the Lord. Right. Yeah. And so like, that's, that's part, I mean, if you're young and you have a more uneasiness about you than someone who's older, that's normal. Like that, that's okay. Like you can work and you can be diligent to practice your way out of that mm-hmm. uneasiness. Yeah. Um, but if it takes you aging to 50 or 60 before you, before the insight snaps into place, yeah. that's, you're just in common with, you know, billions of other people who have gone through that. And so I think that that's, uh, yeah, all that's, that's pretty important. Well, and to bring that back kind of maybe to a, a practical pastoral application, like that's part of our role as pastors or, or, you know, is to, you know, to recognize, man, there are people who are under my care who who maybe haven't walked up as far along the road as I have, and I need to encourage them. That's why we're supposed to like talk about the scriptures when we rise up and when yeah. we lie down and when we're going on our way. It's like reminding one another of the faithfulness of God, encouraging each other in our faith. I mean, it, it is part and parcel of being a follower of Jesus that we celebrate and remember the the deeds of our God so that we are equipped for whatever is coming next, knowing that God is with us. Yeah, I, I can think of few things more liberating than the understanding that if I just act, if I just move, if I just go, that even if I mess it all up, God is able to redeem that. And it's it's it goes as far as being a thief crucified next to Jesus, being mm-hmm. able to dine in paradise, yeah. right? So so I think that this understanding of the sovereignty of God, yes, it's important for trying to walk out a life that turns out well in in your own sight and in the sight of others, but it's also extremely important walking out a life that doesn't end up well, the life that ends in tragedy. I mean, there are stories of people who the tragedies of their lives are just so astonishing that it's scarcely comprehensible. Um, but it's possible that even for people like that, that where they are now justifies and makes whole and makes sense of everything that they went through in their life. Mm -hmm. And all of that is wrapped up in the eternal perspective. Okay. So one last uh, question, we can end on this. This, this ties in nicely, I think with this idea of, of uh, the idolatry of storing up treasures here on earth. Jesus cautioned us against laying up treasures on earth, but instead to store up treasures in heaven. I don't think God intends to deprive us of our capacity to treasure as such but rather that we use this capacity in a spiritually healthy way. So as a pastor, what is your relationship with material goods and how do you keep these things from negatively influencing your ministry? So where do you put yourself on the, on the spectrum of 
value for material goods. And you can think in relation to other pastors who maybe you think are indulging too much versus some who are just in sackcloth and ashes all the time and, you know, only eating vegetables or whatever it is. Like, I, you know, I don't mean to um, disparage that, that sort of thing unless it's done out of a sense of humble pride, uh, then I do disparage it. But the, where is the appropriate balance? Is this subjective, like when it comes to material goods, or is there a place where it's just like, eh, you've gone too far? Yeah, I do think it's, um, it is subjective. And I think it is, I mean, it's why it's so easy for ministers to look at somebody else and go, well, look at what they're driving. Yeah. Like, they're a pastor, and I can't believe um, or look at what they're living or whatever it might be. But, you know, there was a, a pastor when I was growing up in Oklahoma city, pastored one of the largest churches in America. And he lived in a very nice house and it was highly visible right on the main road. And people criticized him all the time. And later in life, I found out that guy personally gave about $2 million a year to missions based on his book sales. And, you know, he was he was personally um, funding missions efforts in entire countries, um, but he got criticized because of the house he lived in. So, you know, I, I want to be careful that um, I don't let my affection for stuff uh, get in the way because it's easy to do. I mean, I've, I've got a Jeep, and if you've ever owned a Jeep, you know it never ends. There's always more stuff to do and more <laughs> modifications and more, you know, all those things. And I enjoy doing that. Um, but if I'm not careful, that can be, that can move from a place where it brings me rest and comfort and joy to a place where it's driving motivation. And so I think there are practical things you can do. Like for me, I don't, I don't, um, I turn down some speaking engagements if, um, you know, specifically if it's not people that we're in our relationship with, um, if I'm not in like a coaching relationship or a mentoring or an overseer relationship with the church, I'm probably not going to go speak there. And even the ones I do, um, you know, um, there's a couple of churches in particular that they're smaller and they can't afford to do much of anything. And I'm cool with that because Summit Church pays me. And, and so, but those are some of the things I do because, I've heard stories of pastors that go preach places and they will call the place later and say, Hey, thanks for the honorarium. Can you increase that for me? It wasn't quite enough. And like, oh, <laughs> what in the world? Anyway. This is an audio medium. So you didn't see my face. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and so that's where I think we just have to be humble about what we have, be faithful with what God's put in our hand. And, um, and make sure that our heart is right before God and, and not be too quick to judge somebody else because they're driving a, a very nice car. Maybe they were given a very nice car. Mm, um, yeah. It's not that they scrape together, you know, they're making an outrageous amount of money. Um, but I was telling, I was telling, Oh gosh, I gotta be careful how to tell the story. I, uh, uh, <laughs> uh, do I tell, yeah, I'll tell the story. So I, I, I worked at a place one time and um, the, the pastor I served, he would not, uh, he would not agree to raises for a couple of our staff that were very underpaid, and and years later I found out that he made he made as much in one month as I made in a year, and it I didn't I didn't I I wasn't angry that he made as much in a month as I made in a year. I was angry that he refused to give 
the approved the raises that I asked for. Mm-hmm. So he was benefiting at the expense of the team. And that just fundamentally goes against what scripture says about yeah. servant leadership. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it doesn't mean that the pastors can't make good money, can't live well, can't be comfortable. But you should be actively taking care of your people. You should be looking out for them. And if you are benefiting at their expense, then you are a predator and you are mm-hmm. taking advantage of people. So I don't know. I just threw up on you know, and all that kind yeah. of thought. But those are just some of my thoughts when it comes to that. Yeah. Well, so I think when people hear about money and church and pastoral ministry, I think they think that a shortcut to virtue is poverty, but I don't think that that's the no. case. No. And I think that like one very godly reason why as a church or as a collection of people seeking to advance the kingdom of God, it is a good thing to get as much money as you can. I'm going to justify that. Get that money, yo. <laughs> yeah. um, is because the money's going to flow whether it flows through the church or not. Mm-hmm. And it's better that it flows through the church than if it flows through the cartel. Mm-hmm. And because it actually will shape and impact and change communities depending yep. on where it goes. Yeah. And so uh, what you do with your dollar will have a reflection on the world that you live in. Mm-hmm. And so we should be, yeah, I mean, I, I don't think that it's unwise, you know, so there was a, I think there's a famous image of Billy Graham walking out of one of his crusades, carrying a couple duffel bags full of cash. And it was just like a... <laughs> It was an unlucky moment where, you know, like <laughs> I would so, say so. somebody took a picture at the wrong time. <laughs> and uh, Were they not zipped? How do they know? He's just like, flowing <laughs> out. This dollar. Just... <laughs> uh, but, but here's the thing. I, I want Billy Graham to be holding duffel bags full of cash, provided he's, right. he's properly advancing the kingdom yeah. of God. Then, yeah. you know, s- somebody else who's got nefarious motives and purposes mm-hmm. for that money. Yeah. Um, and so it's, it's, it's there whether we use it or not. And so we should use it. And that can sound icky to some people. Mm-hmm. But that I think if, it's, if it sounds icky to you on its face, I would suggest that you don't understand the way that money works in shaping the world around you. You don't put enough credence to it. Well, yeah. and, and coming, back to, coming back to the original idea of seek first the kingdom of God. Um, you know, I, I see churches and a lot of times they're mainline old churches have this gigantic building that they built, you know, in the 1880s and they have an endowment for it. It might be a $2 million or $4 million endowment, but that to me is the epitome of, Hey, they have laid up treasure for right now instead yeah. of laying up treasure in heaven. And their treasure for right now is to build their church, the physical building, but they might have 50 people in the church. They're not doing any active ministry. They're not reaching the lost. Yeah. Um, and they, that is to me, that's the epitome of, Hey, I've, I've laid up treasure on earth instead of in heaven. Um, and so churches can do it. People can do it, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. yeah. I think that's a good place to wrap this up. Uh, we, we ran a pretty good circle here. So thank you guys for listening to the back 40 leadership podcast. Mel Todd, thanks for jumping on. Thank you. Thanks, Michael. And we'll see you guys in the next episode. If you enjoy this content, please let us know by rating and reviewing the podcast. You can also contact us at summitpodcasts.church. Remember to share this episode with your friends and on social media. Summit Podcasts can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts, we're there. Thank you for listening to the Back 40 Leadership Podcast, and we will see you in the next episode.